Welcome to this episode of the Political State Podcast from the Oklahoman. This episode was recorded on Friday, April 8th. I'm Ben Felder, a journalist with the Oklahoman covering state government, and joining me is Carmen Foreman, the Oklahoman's lead state capital reporter. In this episode, we're going to discuss this next week's election filing window and a new candidate in the race for governor. We'll also discuss a recent legislative report that accused the state's tourism department of overspending and what we could see in the final months of the legislative session in terms of a response. But Carmen, let's start with probably the big news of the week, and that's the advancement of a bill that nearly bans all abortions, or at least would. Um, As of the recording of this podcast, Governor Kevin Stitt has not yet signed the bill, but we expect him to do so. Carmen, before we talk about the implications of this and the politics of it, can you first tell us what is this what does this bill do and, and why did we see it passed by the House this week? Yeah, um, Senate Bill 612 would um, classify performing abortion as a felony, uh, with only one exception, uh, abortions that would be performed to save the life of a mother in a medical emergency. Um, all others would be all other abortions would be considered a felony, uh, punishable by up to 10 years in prison or $100,000 in fines. And we saw it pass the House this week. Um, I think not a coincidence that it happened to pass the House the same day a bunch of like reproductive rights groups and abort, uh, pro-abortion groups or abortion rights supporters, you know, were outside the Capitol basically They were out there, you know, criticizing a slate of other anti-abortion bills that are moving through the legislature. And um, at the same time, the House passed this bill, sent it on to the governor. Yeah. And this was passed by the Senate last year. um, So it was a final legislative hurdle. Uh, We said we expect the governor to sign it. He has said he'll sign pretty much all uh, uh, anti-abortion laws that come across his desk. Um, And, you know, a lot of people are referring to this as the strongest anti-abortion law in the country i mean it's that's kind of hard to quantify but it but for but it's not unreasonable given the fact that this pretty much would ban almost all abortions at any point right yes um the 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 awkward part is you know who knows if this law will actually ever take effect um you know it's it's ripe for a legal challenge very likely to get challenged in court um before it takes effect if if stitt signed it it would take effect sometime in August. Um, But yeah, I mean, critics of the legislation are saying that, you know, well, down there in Texas, you know, they they passed a very restrictive anti-abortion law and that caps or bans most abortions after six weeks. And they're saying that essentially this law would be far more restrictive than that and could be the most restrictive law in the country if it's allowed to take effect. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think we've talked about this before, but I think back just even just a few years ago, and obviously this Republican majority legislature is very anti-abortion, as you would expect. Um, But we've seen some disagreement between Republican lawmakers, you know, even just a few years ago on how, um, you know, how more extreme should the state be in terms of banning abortions. And we've heard from leaders, especially uh, uh, pro tem Greg Treat, um, who's very anti-abortion, but has said like, hey, I'm not going to hear some of these bills because I just don't think that they would pass, you know, the constitutional challenge. A lot of that has changed now because the, the expectation is that the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, is much more inclined 
to approve strict abortion bans. And we'll obviously see what that looks like this summer. Um, you know, some predict that it's the end of Roe v. Wade. I, I don't know that we'll necessarily see that, but, you know, we may see a ruling that indicates that the courts will be a lot more open to approving, you know, a harsher abortion bans. And so the, the, the political climate has seemed to have changed in the last couple of years. And we see the advancement of this bill it was passed by the Senate last year, but I don't know that we would have solved this bill advance, you know, even a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, we've seen some close to near total abortion bans pass or even get signed into law. Um, Representative Olson, who is a co-author of this bill that's sitting on the governor's desk, he authored one last year that did get signed that um, basically would um, suspend the medical license of anyone who performs an abortion. doesn't make it a felony, but basically says they're unfit to do any medical practice and um, temporarily strips them of their license. Um, but that one has been tied up in court. And I think, you know, Texas has sort of paved the way showing states that like, if you do it right, you can enact what is essentially a, a close to total abortion ban. And you, it, it can't be so far, it has not been undone in the courts. And so they seem to have found a route to kind of lay the groundwork for other conservative states. And now other conservative states are basically saying, okay, uh, we could try what they're doing in Texas, but we could also try to take it a step further in the hopes that the Supreme Court um, either strikes down Roe or really just like cripples it severely. Yeah. Um, are we expecting to see any other anti-abortion measures this year, do you think? Yes, there are two. Um, I mean, there's there's a slate of them, but the the two um, that are the probably the most noteworthy. Um, one is nearly identical to the the law in Texas that would have been um, it would be an abortions after a, a quote unquote fetal heartbeat is detected, which is usually around six weeks, um, and, and it has the civil enforcement piece that basically allows um, private citizens to sue somebody who helps a woman get an abortion after that point. Um, but then we have one that's even more restrictive and would start at conception um, and would basically say anyone who aids or vets a woman seeking an abortion, um, except for to save their life or in rare circumstances, uh, in instances of rape or incest, those uh, private citizens could sue anybody who helped that woman get that abortion. And we know the the bill that passed the House this week that has a, a ninety day um, uh, until it, become, it would come in, it would go into effect ninety days after signed by the governor or at least 90, or it would there be some time. Are these other bills the same or would they be kind of automatic? So these two te these two Texas style ones would take if Governor Stitt signed them would take effect immediately upon his signature, and then the one that passed this week um, and is expected to be signed would take effect 90 days after the end of session. So I think it's late August. Okay. So we could see some uh, pretty quick legal challenges from opponents, especially on these other measures that would take effect immediately. Yes. Yeah. It's I, I, like I said, it's it, the, the political climate has definitely changed with the makeup of the U S Supreme court, but it, it's still kind of, I mean, well, I guess we'll have a better understanding this summer when the court rules on the case that's before it right now. But um I don't know that this issue is going to become any less complicated, you know, any anytime soon, um, because we're not expecting this ruling to just be a blanket like, OK, states can now do whatever they want. There's still going to be, um, you know, federal courts. The state Supreme Court has been involved 
and overturning some of this legislation. Um, but it's de- but the legislature, this Republican legislature, definitely feels a lot more emboldened to um, you know continue to go even further with abortion bans. Yeah, emboldened is a great word to use here because I I mean I think that's what we're seeing, and um, I think the idea is if if the Supreme Court does not totally strike down Roe and give states total freedom to restrict or um, regulate abortion as they see fit. I mean, I think some of these lawmakers are thinking, well, I want I want to be the next court challenge in the queue that goes before the Supreme Court or could, you know, give us an option to restrict abortion further. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about how an election year like we are in impacts the kind of legislation we see. I think these bills are being offered because of the changes we've seen in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but there's probably also a little bit of election year involved in that as well. So let's talk about the elections that are coming up. We've talked a lot about elections on this podcast. Um, next week, we're going to know for sure who's running for office. I mean, a lot of people have announced, but next week is the uh, official candidate filing, a three-day window. So we'll see the candidates officially put their names on the ballot. Um, we also expect to see a, another candidate for governor who announced this week. Uh, who who else has thrown their, their hat into the ring in terms of running for the Republican primary for governor against Kevin Stitt? Yeah, um, Oklahoma Department of Veterans Affairs Director Joel Kinzel announced Thursday that he's going to run as a Republican for governor. People had been talking about him for um I guess months now that he may run. Um, he, he's well known, I think, within the government sphere. But if I understand correctly, this is his first campaign for public office, and um, amongst the general public in Oklahoma, I don't, I don't get a sense that he's super well known. But I, I could be wrong there. Yeah. Well, I, no, I think you're right. Um, and it's this is kind of a, I think it's fair to say a long shot campaign. Not only are you running against an incumbent. Um, but, you know, the primary is only a few months away, um, you know, so to announce at this point, that's not a lot of time uh, to really get your name name out there. Yeah. And I it, it's definitely a short time frame. I mean, you won't have a lot of time to campaign, to fundraise. I mean, in a sense, you're already kind of behind. But um I think there is, you know, a contingent of Republicans out there who look at the governor and they don't like um, how he has operated his administration. And I think some of them might even say to themselves, hey, this this could be this could be a failed attempt. But, uh, you know, I'm going to challenge him anyways. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see who publicly comes out in support of his campaign. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, the, the, the legislature has had some you know, there are grumblings about their support for Stitt. Um, you know, I'm not saying that the it, that it's a large number, but we've, you know, I, I know you hear these rumors too, that, you know, if it was a secret ballot, there probably would be some Republican lawmakers that would vote against Governor Stitt, but I don't know how many of those are actually going to come out, um, you know, and support an alternative campaign. Yeah. And here's the other thing you have to think of, you know, and as you mentioned, we won't know everybody who's running until candidate filing next week, but there's still rumors that other people could jump into the governor's race at um, potentially as Republican candidates or potentially as independents. And that could really, you know, I I, I generally think that, you know, Stitt has a pretty good lead in the governor's race. But if you the more candidates you add, it adds the potential for a Republican primary runoff. It adds the potential that Stitt has to spend more money leading into the general. And then um, who knows what could happen? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it's the chances of him winning a primary are still very strong. Um, but this would still be something that he would have to pay attention to. You know, one thing that's interesting to me um, in the announcement this week is, you know, we're starting to see more of these kind of charges against it. Um, and it's not a, I mean, th- this is a common political tool when you're running against someone, but kind of trying to paint him as kind of a corrupt politician. Now, I'm not saying there's any truth to that, but I mean, we're definitely seeing that from Democrats. Um you know, you've written about some of the the ads that have been against them, some of it on the criminal justice front. But uh, there is a group out there with the Oklahoma Project that's really tried to beat the drum on that. You know, Stid is a businessman who's kind of brought his cronies in. And in this campaign this week, you know, we've really seen a lot of these charges of corruption. And like I said, I mean, that's not an uncommon political tool. And I'm not saying that it's that there's truth behind it. But I do wonder if we continue to see ads about that. I don't know. Is is this a message that could stick and could cause the governor some some problems? It's a really great question. And I don't feel like I'm qualified enough to say because I could also see it going the other way. You know, if you blanket the airwaves with anti-stit ads, I think Oklahomans are skeptical enough and likely to be annoyed enough to be like, well, I met the governor that one time at a town hall and my little you know, hometown, and he seemed nice enough. He didn't seem corrupt at all. And so I just, you know, I think it has the potential to backfire too. If you just overwhelm the voters with so much messaging um, that they may not start to believe it. Yeah. I also think there's probably something that there's probably a feeling amongst, amongst some in the, let's call it the political bubble of Oklahoma City that feel like the governor is maybe a little bit more vulnerable than he really is because there he has for good or bad, he has kind of shaken up the system in some ways. Um, You know, he has changed the way government functions and it has caused some heartburn amongst various different groups. Now, some of it is the legislature's own doing. I mean, they gave him some powers that they now sometimes grumble about, but I mean, with COVID, we've seen kind of the, the healthcare community. I mean, healthcare is a very important sector here um, in, in Oklahoma City. Uh, obviously, his you know uh, consternation with the tribes. I mean, so there's a lot of groups here in in the bubble that would have some complaints about the governor. And I think that if your political uh, uh, lens is only here in Oklahoma City, you may feel like, hey, this guy has some vulnerabilities that maybe we can exploit. But I don't know how far that goes beyond the bubble. I mean, this is a governor that did very well in rural areas. I, 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 you know, I wrote last week about the private school voucher bill and how maybe that becomes a rate, you know, maybe that helps, you know, Hoffmeister pick up some rural votes, but I'm still not sure. I think this is a guy that still does really, really well in those areas. And a lot of those people in those rural areas look at Oklahoma City like they look at DC, that it's kind of a corrupt area, that it needs change, it needs to be shaken up. So, you know, I don't know that, you know, I'm not saying that the political calculations are wrong, but I just sometimes get the sense that here in Oklahoma City, you hear about the governor being somewhat vulnerable in a way that I don't know is a true reflection of reality across the state. And that's just my kind of take on it. Yeah, I think if we, you know, went to a rural area, went on a little field trip, asked 10 different people, hey, uh, how do you feel about our governor or who are you going to vote for in the Republican primary? I think 
every one of them would probably say, I'm going to vote for Kevin Stitt. That's partly because, you know, they may not know who the other candidates are, may not have good name recognition or gotten a chance to get their name out there yet. But um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think we have sort of tunnel vision here in the urban core. Um, and I don't think that Governor Stitt cares about winning the urban core. I don't think he has to necessarily win the urban core to once again win re-election. Yeah. And if you're someone like Joel, you may look at it and say, you know, maybe my campaign's a long shot, but I've heard enough grumbling from some different groups that have some money that maybe I can get some money behind me, whether that's the healthcare sector or the tribes, you know, Chad Richardson. I mean, whoever it might be, there are, there is some frustration towards the governor against some well-financed groups. So there is reason to believe that you could at least pick up some donations that would make a race a little bit less of a long shot, but, but still probably a long shot. I'm curious as we look at candidate filing next week, anything else that you're interested in seeing? I mean, obviously we'll see if any other candidates jump in the governor's race, but, but anything else you're interested in or you'll be yeah. watching more? I do wonder if there's any, you know, people still holding out and might jump into the U.S. Senate race. I think if they do, they're a little far behind considering the field is already getting quite, quite, um, quite big. Um, some of the legislative races could be really interesting. Um, we have, you know, redistricted seats this year. We have, um, I think, at least four five lawmakers that have already announced they're not going to seek re-election. Yeah. And um, it's interesting. They seem to be the more moderate um, uh, on the Republican side. They seem to be the more moderate Republicans in the legislature. Um, I feel like uh, the race for superintendent of public instruction should be interesting. I saw a couple more candidates um, announced this week that they're going to run. And I I'm also still curious if we're going to get a Democratic candidate in any of these other statewide races, whether it's lieutenant governor or attorney general, um, or if Democrats are just going to kind of seed the field there. Yeah, I've got a story coming up about the current lieutenant governor, Republican Matt Pinnell. And one thing that's interesting to me is I saw the Democrats have been putting out uh, several different statements and articles kind of blasting Pinnell. Um, I reached out to the Democratic chair and said, hey, I've seen some of your, your statements. Are you aware of anybody, a Democrat, that's going to be running to take on Pinnell? And the answer I got was no. So, I mean, you know, the second highest office in the land, theoretically, um, and at least a week out from filing, uh, the Democratic Party was unaware of anybody that was going to run. So I don't know, maybe, I mean, I would expect that there probably will be, you know, a Democratic candidate, but um, but I think you're right. It'll be interesting to see who we do see. And I think those legislative races are going to be interesting. The retirements are interesting. Um, you know, I haven't looked at the numbers on these districts yet, but, you know, the, the best chance that Democrats usually have in picking up a seat, and I'm not saying they're going to pick up any of these seats, is usually when the incumbent decides not to run or isn't on the ballot. It usually kind of provides a little bit of an opening. But, um, but yeah, if you see more moderates decide not to run, and we're kind of seeing that at the federal level a little bit too, yeah. um, you know, you wonder what that how that's going to shape the legislature in the future if you see more extremists take 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 up those spots. Yeah. So all in all, I mean, uh, and I don't know if there's anything you're watching for next week, but I am it's I think it's gonna be an interesting election season. I mean it always is, but especially interesting perhaps this year. Yeah, I just think those legislative races are always really interesting to see who kind of decides to run. And these are also kind of theoretically the legislature is kind of, you know, House and Senate seats are, are, are kind of the times when you see someone kind of launch their political career, um, you know, maybe even more so than 
years past. I mean, it used to be maybe you'd run for school board first or maybe a local city council race, maybe you became the mayor of the town, and then you'd run for state house or senate. Now it seems like a lot of people are bypassing that path. So, you know, we may see some people that, whether they're successful or not this year, kind of emerge as names we're going to be hearing a lot of, you know, in the years to come as people who are going to be, you know, running for office or or maybe do win a seat and become, you know, who knows, the, you know, if you and I are still doing this job in 10 years from now, the Speaker of the House in 10 years, maybe someone that we don't know, of, we've never heard their name right now, but maybe a name that we hear here next week. So it, it definitely will be interesting. Um, you know, finally, Carmen, I want to ask you about um, this uh, this loft report that came out last week, um, you know, kind of accusing the tourism department of, of, of misspending. And maybe we should have had our colleague Dave Cathy on to talk about this because he's been kind of really focused in on um, the tourist, tourism department, especially their uh, contract with uh, Swadley's, an Oklahoma-based restaurant that has kind of uh, taken on, has, has built new restaurants, essentially, at some of the state parks. Um, first, real quick, what is, what is Loft? I mean, this, you know, we heard this report coming from Loft. What, you know, what is it? That's a great question. Most people, I, I would assume, don't know. So LOFT stands for Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency. Uh, the best thing I could kind of compare it to is like a, it's either kind of like a congressional budget office, but also kind of like a state auditor's office. Um, but unlike the state auditor's office, the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, um, it, it uh, responds to legislative leadership. So every year, uh, legislative leaders essentially set a roadmap for LOFT. Um, and the, the main thing was, you know, every year state agencies come and they tell lawmakers, hey, we need X dollars for um, this thing and that thing and to keep our agency going for another year. And so the idea kind of was that um, it's not that legislators thought agencies were being untruthful or um not telling the whole picture, but I know after the health department scandal a few years ago, in which, you know, basically they had <laughs> sort of like a secret slush fund of like, I want to say 25 or $30 million, state lawmakers wanted more oversight of state agencies and how they're spending their money. And so a couple of years ago, they uh, passed legislation and Governor Stitt signed it to create LOFT. Yeah. It, and so it is a legislative committee. So it is a is a political entity in, in some ways. So I think that's important to note, not to say that the work that they do isn't valid, but there's just, you know, anything that happens inside that building is gonna have a political undertone, at least somewhat. So, you know, I'm not saying that, that this is like some kind of political witch hunt against the tourism department, but I think that's kind of important to note. And so what we saw in this report is they basically blame the tourism department for, you know, taking some bonds that the legislature approved and renovating state parks in a way that one was against what they were receiving in customer feedback, for example, investing in lodges and restaurants, which weren't really high priorities for customers on surveys. And then two, now asking for a large amount of maintenance funds um, that, the, the, that the report brought up. You know, I think this kind of goes back to, you know, I talked about earlier about, you know, opponents of Stitt are gonna probably try to paint him, and they already are, um, as a corrupt governor. Um, I just, this kind of these kind of stories kind of allow you to beat the drum not that the stit you know that there's a direct link between stit and the state parks but i mean he is the one that hired the executive director of state parks uh, uh director winchester who's kind of taking the heat 
I just, you know, these kind of, it'll be interesting to see kind of how these reports are used politically, especially for those that are running for office. Yeah. And I would not be surprised to hear those running for office against it, you know, kind of use this sort of thing against him, whether or not he had any knowledge of what was going on or any ties to what was going on or any really say so besides the fact that he, you know, hired the director of the parks and tourism department. Yeah. Are you expecting to see any kind of response from the legislature this year from this report? I mean, I haven't seen anything major yet. I talked to the uh, chairwoman of the tour of the House Tourism Committee, and she kind of gave a simple statement of like, well, we're interested in learning more. Uh, the lieutenant governor, who is the secretary of tourism, has essentially said, hey, we'll probably take some recommendations from this report, but has not seemed overly concerned. I'm curious, do you think we're going to see the legislature act in any way this year on it? It's hard to say because um, on one hand, I could see lawmakers just kind of waiting for what the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, what they're, I mean, they're looking into possible criminal wrongdoing in this whole situation. And so they may wait for what their report shows, but, you know, that's going to take probably months and we probably won't hear about that until lawmakers are out of session. On the other hand, I could see um, it this becoming an issue perhaps in the budget process, um, yeah. that when uh, state lawmakers decide how much to give the tourism department this year, maybe they lay in, in statute some ground rules of, well, you can only spend this much on renovating park lodges and restaurants, or you can only spend uh, this much on Swadley's contracts, or you can't spend anything at all on Swadley's contracts until you go back to the drawing board and let's say rebid out this contract or something like that. I'm just, I'm just spitballing here. I have not heard that that's what they're going to do, but in my mind, that could be the one logical route if lawmakers decided action was necessary sooner rather than later. Yeah. And one of the findings or one of the recommendations in that loft report to lawmakers was to uh, curtail the spending or at least not approve any additional spending until they kind of get a better handle of kind of where the money's going to. So you're right. The budget process is probably where we're going to see the biggest impact or the biggest response from lawmakers, you know, in this report. Um, you know, it's I think, uh, you know, state parks are also, you know, we talk about the political bubble of Oklahoma City. I don't know how many lawmakers usually go to state parks. Um, you, you know, you're, you're an attendee of state parks. Uh, my son and I are actually going tonight to go camp in one of the state parks. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a tough thing, right? Because you, the, 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 the state parks have been kind of overlooked for a long time. And the tourism department will say like, listen, we needed to invest some money into these state parks. It's an important part of tourism. We saw attendance really rise during COVID. We want to capitalize on that. But when you hear about how much money is being spent, say at a state park near Wilburton and there's a new restaurant, the $14 cheeseburger. It's easy to think like that's a waste of money. And I'm not arguing that it's not. It's just, um, you know, I actually went last week to the state park at Robert's Cave for a tourism commission meeting. Um, and it's nice. I mean, it's you definitely can't say that they took the money and just pocketed it, although there's maybe some of the accusations for that when it comes to Swadley's. But um, they definitely use some of the money to to make a, a, a nice facility and, you know, in a part of the state that maybe doesn't have as much investment as others. Yeah. And I think there's just like this long argument, um, just this long standing problem in state government that, you know, when. When the recession happened more than a decade ago, you know, our state government kind of got hit hard. And then, you know, again, throughout all those years, all those years with, you know, budget deficits and 
if not budget deficits, tight budgets. Uh, you know, state lawmakers at those times looked at, okay, we need to fund for services. And I think there was a mindset that, you know, state parks are more for fun and they're not necessarily always core services. Um, and so I think you could definitely make the argument that the parks have been kind of neglected for a while. And when Jerry Winchester, the tours, new tourism or has been tourism director under Governor Kevin Stitt, when he came in, he was very vocal about, well, <laughs> we're either going to have to start closing some of these parks because they're a drain on us um, and we don't have the resources to maintain them or keep them up, or we're going to have to start making improvements. So yeah, I- it goes both ways. It's, it's yeah, I mean, kind of going back to that, like, accusations of corruption versus, you know, rural support for Stitt, uh, you know, after the tourism meeting at, at Robert's Cave, you know, I went to the restaurant, the waitress, now, I think she knew I was a reporter, so take it for with a grain of salt, who knows what was told to her before, but as she's walking to my table, she was like, hey, isn't this a great restaurant, and, and it's provided so many jobs, and a part of the state really needs it, but I think she's right, and and I think you know, you might talk to some people, you know, they may see some commercials, maybe Joel comes out with some commercials about, you know, the governor's, you know, funneling money into these state parks and being pocketed by, you know, a a barbecue restaurant chain. But some of these communities are probably going to say, we look at these as like investments in rural Oklahoma, you know, where we haven't seen a lot of investments in recent years. So um, once again, like a lot of issues, I think it kind of depends on where you live in the state, sometimes how you view these political, these political issues. Yeah, I would agree completely. Yeah. Um, well, like we said, our, our colleague, uh, Dave Cathy, um, our our food writer, and has been writing about this because uh, there's a restaurant, Swaldi's Restaurant is at the center of this. has been doing a good job of covering that. And we're kind of expecting to see some more stories on that. So I would encourage you to uh, follow his reporting for the latest on this loft report um, and the, uh, the contracts between tourism and uh and swaddle so well that's going to do it for this week's episode of the political state podcast if you aren't already i'd encourage you to subscribe so you can get the you can get each episode as soon as it drops each friday uh for carmen foreman i'm ben felder thanks for listening and we'll be back with you for another episode next week